Blog Talk Radio. We already have. Hi, Donnie, and hello, Glenn. Yay. Thank you for watching tonight. Happy New Year, everybody. Yes, and happy birthday, Donnie. Yes, happy birthday, Donnie. Yes. Yes, so, huh? Happy days all around. Yes, yay for snow, because we got snow today, and I got released from work early because snow day, yep. partially. 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 It was quiet at the shop. Yep. I sat there here working for her whole shift because I'm, well, my is work from home day. Yes. I'm, well, and also for the next two weeks, I'm work from home. banned from the office. Not really banned from the office. Everybody's been home from the office, but it is what it is. I didn't want anybody bringing COVID home <sighs> or back to work. That's a whole other discussion. The, the, yeah. Anyway, let's talk about planet transportation in London. Yeah, talk um, about something happier. This one was near and dear to my heart, so I did spend a semester abroad in London, and I went to several of these tube stops, and yeah. I unfortunately didn't see the bus we're going to talk about. I really wanted to, though. We'll get to that, though. Yeah. But hope that everybody, yeah, that, um, yeah had a Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas as well, because, well, we haven't talked to people since before Christmas. This is true. So, yeah. But, um, yeah, before we dive right in, just a real quick plug for some stuff that we have coming up. Yes. We have our uh, we have a tour on Friday, and we have a pub hop on Saturday. If you want to join us for that, that's going to be a lot of fun. It'll be our second pub hop. The first one was last month, and uh, had a blast. Yeah, we had a so, nice, small, intimate group, and it was perfect. Yep. So, um, yeah, that one kept it only 12 people. Yeah. Keep it nice and, nice and cozy. And then at the end of the month, we're going to be up at uh, Paracon at Hanover Tavern. Uh, Chris and I will actually be presenting Friday night for a haunted dinner. That's part of the VIP event. Yep. Uh, and then we'll be part of the investigations both nights and, of course, be at our table on Saturday. Um, so definitely come check that out. Yeah, so that'll be good. And, yeah. Um, we have some guys on the 22nd. Saturday the 22nd, yeah. Ah, yes, yes. That are going to be at the Museum um, for their events, and they'll be sharing a couple of stories in each of the buildings. So if you want to catch us for that event, um, I believe that's starting at 6. I think so, yes, 6 to 9. Yes, yep. so um, something where you can go in and uh, talk about McCoe's life and Macabre and how that affected his life, and then, of course, the ghost stories that we have and also the staff's going to and share some of the stuff that they experience in the building. Yep. And Donnie's going to be uh, Paracon at the 22nd. Yes, he is. So, yeah, which means, uh, yeah, it's, uh, him and I'm sure some uh, some other wonderful folks from uh, Spirit Guides. Yes. So, yeah, we're, we're looking forward to that. That's going to be, uh, that's going to be a blast all around. Yep. We're looking forward to seeing you there, Donnie, along with uh, everybody else. So, And, uh, yeah, the other only other thing uh, that we'd like to plug, uh, as we've been saying, Haunts of Key West. Please, come play with us in Key West. Yep. If you've got questions about it, drop us a note. Otherwise, you can check out the itinerary as it stands right now at hauntofkeywest.com. But for now, for this evening, we are going to be going, going to a uh, somewhat more gray and dreary locale. Once upon a midnight Yeah. <laughs> Not exactly who he was, the place he was talking about, but still. But it's very, very, yeah, it's dreary and cold and wet and up in London. Yep. So... Now, most, now, here we are, and most people dread their morning commute for reasons that are all too tangible. Yeah. Oh, yeah, me. <laughs> uh, rude drivers. Yeah, definitely. Traffic. Uh-huh. The guy who hasn't showered in a week sitting next to you on the bus or metro. Do not I remember that. <laughs> yep. But we generally don't give much consideration to the long-dead generations who commuted these thoroughfares before us. 
It was trying to get around London, England, though, the spirits of those who came before us are very much something to be concerned about, though. Now, most prevalent here is going to be the London Underground. Because there's a lot of haunted stations on the two. Yeah, so let's let's kind of dive right in here. Give you a little bit of an overview first. The London Underground serves a large part of the greater London area and its surrounding environs of Essex, Herefordshire, Buckinghamshire, just to name a few. And most simply refer to this engineering marvel as the underground or the tube. The latter name derived from the shape of the system's deep bore tunnels. It is not only the longest underground railway in the world at over 250 miles, it is also the world's oldest. The Metropolitan Railway Company opened its Metropolitan line for business on January 10, 1863. So while we were kind of embroiled in the middle of the Civil War over there, over here, they were uh, opening up their first underground station. Yeah, it's been that long. And we, it came soon afterwards. But yeah. that was Either way. <laughs> and within months, its trains were carrying over 20,000 passengers daily. Today, the London Underground boasts 11 lines serving 268 stations. And in 2019, the network, yeah, the network recorded over 1.3 billion passenger trips transporting those passengers over 12.1 billion kilometers. Now, despite its immense success of the underground, one of the major headaches facing the engineers and construction workers commissioned to develop and expand the network has been the presence of huge burial pits dating back to the summer of 1665 when London was ravaged by an outbreak of bubonic plague, also better known as the Black Death. Since no one knew how many of these black plague pits existed, nor exactly where they were located, it was inevitable that as the underground expanded more and more of these plague pits would be disturbed, often without any warning. In one of the most prominent cases, when the Victoria Line was being constructed in the 1960s, a tunnel boring machine plowed straight into a long-forgotten plague pit at Green Park, traumatizing several of the unsuspecting construction workers on site. You think they'd be used to it by now? And that's, I don't know you get used to that. <laughs> to the southern end of the London Road Depot, there are two tunnels. One exits onto the line between Lambeth North and Elton and Castle Stations. The other is a dead-end tunnel designed to stop runaway trains. Behind the wall, however, at the end of this dead-end tunnel is yet another one of London's many plague pits. Liverpool Street Station, the London terminus of the former Great Eastern Railway, is actually built upon a plague pit, like as in on top of, as is Aldgate Station and the Piccadilly line between Knightsbridge and South Kensington is said to curve around a pit so dense with human remains that it could not be tunneled through. Setting aside the awful legacy of the plague pits for a moment, the London Underground has also witnessed its own fair share of human tragedy in the last 100 and counting years. It's been a while, 150 plus years. People have been killed building the network. People have been killed maintaining the network. People have died of natural causes on the network. People have been murdered on the network. Others have used the network to end it all by throwing themselves in front of a speeding train. There have been train crashes, derailments, and major fires on the network that have all claimed lives. In the dark days of the Blitz on London, the Luftwaffe scored direct hits on a number of underground stations, causing devastation, destruction, and loss of life. And the underground has also been the target of terrorists on more than one occasion. 
Given that the London Underground has carved its way through a veritable charnel house of decaying corpses and that it has also witnessed thousands of sudden and violent deaths, since it first opened for business in 1863, it is little wonder that the London Underground has acquired a reputation for ghostly goings on. And murder cats, apparently. Yeah. Thousands of commuters and station workers have reported spirited sightings over the years, leaving us with many tales at London's underground stations, each of which is haunting enough to leave even the most hardened of public commuters with a chill running down their spine. And with that, I will let that go ahead and take it over with our first station of the evening. Are you ready to jump that cat? <laughs> All right, so we're going to talk about Covent Garden Station. Um, this one is on the Piccadilly Line in the east end of the borough of Westminster, just outside the city of London proper. And it's one of the few underground stations in central London that doesn't have any escalators. So if you want your steps, go do stairs. They also, of course, have a lift for those who need it. Now, just a few blocks away from Covenant Garden Station is the Strand. It's the modern-day Adelphi Theater, and it's, well, it's not the same building that was there, of course, in 1897. Another playhouse of the same name was there at the time. Now, the Adelphi Theater in, on December 16th of 1879 was ending in an evening performance of The Secret Service. It was scheduled to take place with a very popular actor, William Terrace, among the stars. Now, William Charles... James Lewin Paris uh, took to the stage in 1867 under the stage name William Tourette. He uh, quickly established himself as a very popular actor in Victorian London and, uh, of course, did very well at the swashbuckling and heroic roles. Uh, but as he was entering the Adelphi on that fateful night on December of 1897, the 50-year-old Paris was stabbed to death by a deranged, disgruntled actor by the name of Richard Archer, Archer Prince. Sarah had helped the struggling Prince find work on various productions that he had had a hand in. However, over the years, Prince increasingly abused alcohol and became mentally unstable. During the run of Harbor Lights, in which Prince had a minor role, Therese had uh, taken offense to something that Prince had said about him, and Prince was dismissed. Despite the disagreement, Therese uh, sent small sums of money to Prince via the Actors Benevolent Fund and continued to try to find some acting work. But by the end of 1897, Prince was destitute and considered unemployable. Prince blamed Terrace for his situation and leading to the ambush at the Adelphi. As Terrace lay dying in the arms of his leading lady, Jessie Millward, he supposedly whispered to her, I'll be back. Sound familiar? As Nico comes running through, or Vincent does. Uh, the murder became the sensation of the London press. Upon his arrest, Prince told the police, I did it for revenge. He had kept me out of unemployment or out of employment for 10 years, and I either had to die in the street or kill him. At the trial, Prince was found guilty, but insane, and he was sent to Broadmoor Commercial Lunatic Asylum, where he died in 1937. As for Terrace, he was able to be true to his word. In 1955, an employee of the underground uh, named Jack Caden spotted a tall and distinguished gentleman wearing an old-fashioned gray suit with a funny-looking older-style collar and light-colored gloves. Inside the station, past closing time. With the gates already locked, Caden told the gentleman that he would unlock the gate in just, in just a moment and let him out. 
Hayden turned away for that moment, and when he turned back, the man vanished. Hayden saw the man again four days later. When he approached the gentleman, he disappeared before Hayden died. A few days later, Hayden heard a scream coming from the station staff room. When he investigated, he found a young employee named Victor Locker quivering with fear. Locker claimed to see a man disappear before his eyes. The man fit the same description as Hayden's disappearing man. Locker was so terrified by this experience that he resigned his post and never returned to the Covenant Guard station again. Hayden saw this ghost many more times during the next two years before his promotion and transfer to another station. He nicknamed him Charlie. Hayden and Locker went the only ones to see Charlie, but reports from all over the station were landing on the desk of the station master, Mr. A. Jones. A pile of reports sparked an investigation, and a foreman from Leicester Square Station named Eric Davey was brought in to investigate these claims. Davey was selected in no small part because he was also an amateur spiritualist. Davey, in turn, invited an artist to come and speak with the eyewitnesses and to create a sketch based on their identical descriptions of the ghost. The sketch was published and quickly made the rounds. It didn't take long for others to say it looked like William Tourette. And when the photograph of Tourette was shown to Hayden and Locker, they confirmed Charlie was, in fact, William. Well, Covenant Garden Station was not open until about 10 years after Tourette's death, Tourette would have been familiar with this area where the station stands today. In fact, his favorite bakery was located on the spot. Covenant Garden Station is considered to be the closest underground service point for the adult theater, and it may be that this passionate actor is simply exploring new ways to get to and from the theater where he has. Sightings of Harris continue to the station for many, many years. The last one was recorded in 1972. Now, Harris was also seen at the theater itself. During his time at the Adelphi Theater, he became romantically involved with Jesse Millward. Harris was regularly announced himself to Millward by wrapping off her dressing room door twice with his cane. Today, actresses occupying uh, Millward's dressing room frequently hear two knocks on the door and others, of course, have seen him standing in the room or getting into its bed. We like to hang around theaters, what can we say? <laughs> Any good questions? Uh, no questions yet. But, yeah, could dive into that one a little further next time we do our haunted theaters. There's more to the Adelphi <laughs> Theater, so there, we could share more about that. Yeah. But more transportation now. Uh, snow, oh, me and Anthony should go out and make abominable snowman and snow jack o' lanterns and make Krampus Angel. I was going to say, I have snow things upstairs. I just haven't put them out yet. No, yeah. And, and well, the skeletons are decorated for a little bit. Yes. We'll have to just post a picture of that sometime. Yeah. They're having a meeting right now. Okay. Yeah. Moving to the south side of the Thames, we enter South Work Borough. At the heart of the borough is Elephant and Castle Station. Now, this odd name is derived from a coaching inn that once stood at the site with the earliest record of the name dating back to 1765. Elephant and Castle. Interesting one. Anyway, the station opened for service in 1890 and has drawn a collection of haunting activities in the years since. In the out-of-sight type of experiences, maintenance and cleaning staff working in the station late at night have reported hearing the sound of someone running along the deserted platform. The phantom runner has never been seen. And in addition, strange 
tapping sounds have been heard on the platform, and doors in the station have been known to suddenly slam open or close for no apparent reason. Other spirits at the station are not as shy, but their identities are unknown. A young woman has been seen by workers and passengers alike boarding a train at the station only to disappear completely once the train starts to pull out of the station. Another spirit dates back to the earliest days of the station with a tall man in a hat and a cloak wandering the corridors after dark. Since the gates opened, since, yeah, wandering the corridors after dark since the gates first opened over a century ago. Now, Elephant and Castle Station is at the south end of the Bakerloo Line. And moving north from there, we pass under the Thames River and eventually continue under the long-term location of Madame Tussauds Museum. Now, until 2016, Madame Tussauds featured an infamous exhibition known as the Chamber of Horrors. But the Chamber of Horrors had roots going back to the origins of the museum in 1802, where a lot of the exhibits at that point in time were uh, revolved around the French Revolution and, most notably, the uh, guillotining aspect of said French Revolution. Yeah, there was a lot of death masks in there. Now, in 1983, while on a day trip to London with her family, Karen Collette snapped a photograph of her nephew in a carriage of a Bakerloo line train as was passing near Madame Tussauds. When developed, a sinister image was revealed to be lurking behind the youngster. The eerie figure behind Karen's nephew appears to be the wax effigy of Bruno Hoffman, which at the time was on display in the Chamber of Horrors. Hoffman was the man found guilty of abducting and murdering Charles Lindbergh's infant son in 1932. He received the death penalty for his heinous crime and was sent to the electric chair at New Jersey State Prison on April 3, 1936. Hoffman's waxwork at Madame Tussauds depicted the moment of execution, complete with the prison warden's announcement and subsequent power surge as the chair did its work. What makes Karen's photo unusual is that she hadn't set foot in Madame Tussauds, let alone take any photographs depicting a gruesome execution. It would seem the only plausible explanation for the anomaly on Karen's photo is that she captured a poster. However, Karen took the photo whilst the tube was traveling fast through the tunnel, and neither Madame Tussauds nor London Underground have any record of Hoffman's ever effigy ever being used on advertising material. The photograph and its negative have been subjected to detailed analysis, and no evidence of tampering has been discovered. In fact, any manipulation would be practically impossible with the basic 1980s camera used. In a bizarre twist to the story, Karen accompanied her friend to a reading from a medium shortly after the photograph was taken. Although Karen chose not to go in, the psychic made a point of coming out to see her, saying he'd been given a message. It's about your photo. I just want you to know that the man said, I'm accused of something I didn't do, but I did something else. Was this chilling message a desperate plea from Hoffman's spirit? He'd always protested his innocence, and there are indeed many who believe he was framed. Yeah, we saw this photo, and it, it looks like it's fake, but it's not. Yeah. It's really weird. Ah, yes, yep. So, yeah, I'm glad the first, like, uh, probably two-thirds of this whole thing is going to be subway. Haunted, haunted subway <laughs> underground stuff. <laughs> I found a jackpot. Yep. <laughs> when I was researching. 
around in transportation. That's what everybody uses if they're not on a double-decker bus. We have a couple other things to chat about, but a lot of underground. Yeah. All right, so we're going to step over to Faraday Station, which is north of city London proper, um, Islington Borough. Uh, on the south border of the borough, just outside the city center, is the station. On quiet nights, blood-curdling screams can be heard around Farringdon, echoing up and down corridors. Reports of these terrifying sounds have been frequent throughout the years. The station serves at the Metropolitan, the Hammersmith, and City, and the Circle Line, and it's said to be haunted by the ghost of a 13-year-old girl named Anne Naylor. She was an apprentice hat maker. Anne and her sister were orphans in the 18th century London, and it's common practice at this time for the children, once they reach the age of 12, to be apprenticed out to local businesses. Anne and her younger sister were given into the care of a local woman who ran a millinery shop. A Mrs. Sarah Metyard and her daughter Sally ran the establishment. These two women had five young girls apprenticed to them, but they provided what would not be characterized as care. The girls under Met Yard's care were often beaten and starved. Both women had hot tempers and enjoyed inflicting pain. Anne, unfortunately, was often the target because she was sickly and could not keep up with her assigned work. At one point, Anne managed to escape the house, and they hunted her down, forcefully returned her to the shop. As punishment, Sally beat Anne and locked her in the attic where she was given only bread and water. Anne was now desperate and once more escaped the house. This time, Sally brought her back, viciously beat Anne with a broomstick, and then Mrs. Metyard tied Anne to the attic door where she was forced to stand for hours during the day. She was tied to the store for three days without food or water. Mrs. Metyard pointed her out to the other apprentices, warning them that this would happen to them if they ever tried to escape or disobey her. On the fourth day, the other apprentices noticed that Anne was not moving. They called Sally, and uh, Sally, of course, beat Anne around the head with a shoe, and she didn't respond. She then called for her mother. Mrs. Metyard tried to revive Anne with smelling salts, but when this didn't work, they realized Anne was dead. They locked her body in a trunk in the attic and made a show of taking food to her for days so the other apprentices would not suspect anything was amiss. They even left the attic door open and the shop door ajar, claiming that Anne had run away yet again. After two months passed, the two women started to worry that the neighbors would wonder about the smell because the body was still in the trunk in the attic. On Christmas Day, they dismembered the body, wrapped each piece in a cloth, and at first they actually tried to burn these pieces in their fireplace, but realizing it caused an odor. So instead, they took the fragments to a mud puddle near the sewer off of Chick Lane. When the remains were found, it was assumed there was a body that had been snatched and then dissected by medical students. Soon afterward, witnesses started to see a ghost of a young girl dressed in white in the area where the body had been dumped. Over wit uh, other witnesses heard a young girl scream. So many people saw and heard this apparition that eventually most of the borough felt Chick Lane was haunted. The Metyards might have gotten away with this murder if it hadn't been for Sally's confession. Four years after they disposed of Anne's body, the two women had a rather large fight, which prompted Sally to move out and live with a man who was her lover. When he mentioned the ghost of Chick Lane, Sally confided into him what she and her mother had done. Naively, he informed the authorities, downplaying Sally's role in a belief that she would not be accused. 
But both the Metcalf women were, uh, excuse me, Metyard women were arrested, tried, and found guilty. The judge, when sentencing both women to hang, announced justice would not be complete unless both of their bodies were dissected after death. So when Mrs. Metcalf was walked to the scaffolding, she collapsed. Her jailers were not able to revive her, so she was hung while she was still unconscious. Sally cried as she took this on a walk, and both bodies were put on public display after they were hanged on July 19th of 1768. The bodies were then dissected at Surgeon's Hall. Chick Lane is now called West Street, and many of the 18th century buildings in this area have been torn down. New ones have replaced them, but despite the changes, the neighbors still say it's haunted. The day in the area where Abe's body was dumped stands the Farrington Station. Countless witnesses, as we said, have heard Anne scream when they stand on the platform and just after the last train leaves for the evening. Hey. Yeah, well, I move from Grant Glenn. Well, that's crazy. I, yeah, that is. Yeah. I've been to Carrington Station. Um, but it wasn't at the end of the day, so I was there early. I've seen pictures of it. This place just seems to have a vibe. It does. It, it, I, I literally got off the chair and was like, I need to get out of here. It, it, looks, <laughs> it almost looks like you're entering a cave. Now, I understand, yes, it's the underground. But generally speaking, you go down a set of stairs it's or a lift brightly or an escalator or something like that. Farrington, the pictures I saw, it literally looks like you're just entering this it's a dark, dank tunnel kind of station. Thing. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> those were the pictures I saw, at least. Yeah. It, it wasn't pretty when I was there. Yeah. In a few years. And that was 95 and 2000. No, 99. You're dating yourself. I am. It's been a while. Sorry, mm. my life has gone by. Yeah. Oh, we're going to date me that far. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. The City of London proper is the historical financial center of the city, where most modern skyscrapers tower over many of London's most prominent historic sites. At the northeast edge of the city, northeast, northeast edge of the city proper is Liverpool Street Station. The site is both a major underground station and a railroad terminal. As a matter of security, all stations are monitored via closed-circuit television by line controllers. In the summer of 2000, the line controller who was monitoring the footage from Liverpool Street Station noticed a man dressed in white overalls standing in the entrance of the central, central line's eastbound tunnel. What made it so unusual was the fact that it was 2 a.m. The station had been closed for the night and there were no contractors scheduled to be working there. The line controller rang the street station supervisor, a man of 23 years of experience of working on the underground and asked him to investigate. The station supervisor went down to the eastbound tunnel and looked in it and all around the immediate area but could find no trace of the man in the white overalls. Using a telephone at the foot of the escalator, he rang the, rang the line controller and told him that he had conducted a thorough search of the area but hadn't been able to find the man. The line controller, clearly perplexed, said, but this guy was standing next to you. How could you not see him? The station supervisor assured him that he had conducted a very thorough check of the area and that there definitely was no one down there. 
He even asked the line controller whether the image of the man could have been the result of a blip on the CCTV system, but when he was assured that the system was in perfect working order, he agreed to conduct a second search of the area just to be absolutely certain. The station supervisor went and conducted another search of the area, but the result was the same as the first. He could not find any trace of the man in the tunnel or in the immediate vicinity of the tunnel. He returned to the telephone at the foot of the escalator, called the line controller, and told him that the second search had also failed to find any trace of the man in the white overalls. The line controller was insistent, however, that as he watched the second search of the area on his TV screen be being conducted, he had clearly seen the man in the white overall standing within touching distance of the station supervisor. Reluctantly accepting what the station supervisor had told him, the line controller thanked him for carrying out the searches and rang off. As the station supervisor turned and walked back onto the eastbound platform, he noticed to his left a bench, and on that bench there was a pair of white paper overalls. The station supervisor was certain that if anyone had walked out of the tunnel whilst he had been on the telephone, he would have seen them and he would have also seen anyone leaving the overalls on the platform bench. Many workers have spotted strange figures on the CCTV system in the dead of night and passengers have reported seeing a man in overalls pacing up and down the platforms. The station was rumored to be built on a massive burial site, which is admittedly a bit cliche, Unsettlingly, this turned out to be true as over 3,000 skeletons were unearthed in 2015. The remains of plague victims who had been buried during the Black Death. Perhaps they account for some of the very same figures showing up on the station cameras. Hmm? <laughs> The bank station. These are, yeah, not, not that I blend These are, <laughs> these are creepy stories. Yeah. Uh, from Liverpool Station Street, we're going to move southwest along the central line, and we arrive at Bank Station. It's named for the nearby Bank of England, and its roots can be traced back to 1876, although the first time bank name was used was in 1900. On January 11, 1941, during the Blitz, over 50 people were killed, and nearly 70 people were injured when the central line ticket measured 120 feet long and 100 feet wide and had to be covered with Bailey Bridge for traffic to pass over. Bank Station was put out of action for two months. It is not, however, a victim of that dreadful day that haunts Black Station. In fact, the story goes back to the ghost of Philip Whitehead's sister, Sarah. Philip Whitehead was a cashier at the Bank of England and he was arrested for forging checks and he was subsequently tried at Old Bailey, found guilty, and hanged in England. Now, news of his crime and execution was, however, kept from his devoted sister, Sarah Whitehead. She was removed by Philip Trent to a house in Wine Office Court off Fleet Street. But one day, Sarah turned up at the Bank of England and inquired of her brother's whereabouts. And an unthinking clerk promptly blurted out the story of Philip's crime and his death. The shock of the discovery turned the poor woman's mind and Thereafter, she clicked to turning up at the bank every day, asking after her brother in the belief that he still worked there. She became known as the bank nun on account of her peculiar attire that consisted of a long black dress and a black crepe veil worn over her face and head. 
The city merchants took pity on her and never let her pass without extending their assistance. Also, the directors and the clerks of the Bank of England saw to it that she was frequently provided with sums of money in complement of her misfortune. But she became convinced that the bank governors were keeping an immense fortune from her, and this led to her frequently hurling insults at them during business hours. On one occasion, Baron Rothschild was going about his business at the stock exchange when she suddenly appeared and called him a villain and a robber telling him that he had defrauded her of her fortune and demanding 2,000 pounds that he owed her. He responded by taking half a crown from his waistcoat pocket, handing it to her, and telling her as he did so, there, then, take that and don't bother me now. I'll give you the other half tomorrow. Accepting the money, she thanked him and went away. By 1818, the bank governors had grown tired of, of her daily disturbances and so gave her the sum of money on a condition that she never returned to the bank again. In life, she kept that contract, but in death, her race has broken it many times. Indeed, more than one late night wandering and winding their way home through Threadneedle Street has been surprised by her ghostly figure appearing before them and with downcast eyes inquiring sadly, so politely, have you seen my brother? Sarah's ghost has been glimpsed on numerous occasions in the bank's garden and on the platforms and passageways of the station. There have also been reports of foul, unexplained smells, feelings of great sadness, anxiety, and hopelessness in the station. Okay. And you need to keep reading. Okay. I will say, this next one really kind of threw me for a loop. I think <laughs> that there's umpteen different ways to tell it, and it has been recorded umpteen different ways. And trying to cross-reference was not fun. Not fun. <laughs> so hopefully I managed to assemble something that is not completely gobbledygook. Enjoy reading. <laughs> so this is one of um, the two many clothes there's actually several of them that are known as ghost stations. Um, this is the British Museum Station and Holborn Station. So trains have not been through the abandoned British Museum Station since 1933. The sheer malevolence of this resident spirit has landed it on our haunted underground stops tonight. Many people believe that the long abandoned British Museum tunnels are haunted by the spirit of an enchantress of the Egyptian god Amun-Ra. Amun-Ra. The story goes that a coffin lid was brought into the British Museum from ancient Egypt, and while this is an unusual in and of itself, the lid was thought to have an unhappy spirit attached to it. To try and put it to, uh, back to rest, the museum permitted a seance to be conducted. Yeah, you all know how that happened, right? It stirred things up. Didn't put to rest. Anyway. Shortly thereafter, disembodied screaming and wailing sounds were heard nearby in Holborn Station. The screams became so well-known that they were featured in a comedy thriller called The Bulldog Jack in 1935. On the night that the film was released, two women disappeared from Holborn Station. Scratch marks were later found in the abandoned British Museum Station, leading some to think that the vengeful spirit of the Enchantress had snatched the women and dragged them back to her lair. 
Her presence in the retired British Museum station is so notorious that the national newspaper once offered a reward to anyone who would dare spend a night in the station on their own. No one took them up on the challenge, by the way. You have a new co-host. I have several furry co-hosts tonight. But yeah, so on that particular story, found references to um, priestess, enchantress, I'm guessing those were terms were used interchangeably. Yeah. But perhaps the most of all the in inconsistencies was one actually said that it was the god, Amun-Ra, who was actually present there himself. Yeah, that's Yeah, so <laughs> the, the tunnels were haunted by an Egyptian god. I don't, know, I, don't, I don't know if haunted is the right word in that sense, but... But, you know, I mean, if he decided to come to London because it's more fun than We won't get into British archaeology on this show. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> when will we hear the new co-host tell a story? I'm down for that. Wow, that did not take long for me to get fired. <laughs> oh, no, so you had tried to take over my spot first tonight, and I was like, okay, I'm going upstairs and going to bed. <laughs> so I'm like, wait, she can't read. Uh, so, anyways, moving on. Beckentree Station is a quiet commuter overground station on the district line in Barking. Yes, Barking is the name of the place. Dagham Borough in East London. Opened in 1932, it has four platforms, but there are only currently two in use. In 1992, a station supervisor working a late shift became unnerved when a door in his office that opened onto the National Railway's platform rattled three times for no apparent reason. Feeling distinctly uncomfortable, he left his office to find one of his colleagues upstairs for a reassuring chat. He walked along the platform, but as he nears the staircase, he had the distinct impression that someone was walking behind him. Turning around, he was confronted with a rather disturbing image of a woman in a white dress with long blonde hair, but with no face. There was, in his words, just a blank where her features should have been. <laughs> the image faded away after a few seconds, uh, and when he spoke to his colleague shortly after, his colleague confirmed that he, too, had seen the apparition. In 1958, 10 people died in a train collision on this part of the district line. Both trains had left Bacon Tree Station just minutes before. So that is what the uh, kind of attributes to the, uh, the woman in white there, if you will. So... Now, moving on to during World War II. Yeah, this was a really unique one. Um, I've actually seen this station as I heard about it in one of my classes while I was studying there, and I just I had to go see it because there was a plaque there, but it was the site of the biggest civilian disaster during the war. Mm -hmm. Did you want to read this? No, go right ahead. Okay. <laughs> so, during World War II, Bethnal Green Tube Station was one of the few stations that were the obvious choice for shelter when air raids were being carried out. The station has 5,000 bunks, and at times it can hold 7,000 people. The station saved many lives during the Blitz. However, it also became the site of one of the worst civilian disasters of the war. 
Following the heavy bombing of German forces on March 3, 1943, Londoners flocked through the streets and into the underground shelters. When the air raid siren sounded to announce another raid, almost 500 people were already inside the station. Further into the evening, more than 1,500 people were ushered into the station. It was also raining during that time, and the steps were wet and slippery. The siren went off at 12, or 2017, or as we, we call it, 817, in the evening, and people started to make their way through the darkness, which was described as like running through ink to the station. At first, everything was pretty much normal at Bethnal Green Tube Station. People started to walk calmly down the 19 steps to the landing, taking care as it had been raining and the steps were slippery. Suddenly, 10 minutes later, everyone heard a loud noise, which was unlike anything they had ever heard before. Startled and confused, a woman with a small child at the bottom of the steps fell. An elderly man behind her lost his balance and fell on top of the woman. This started a horrifying and unstoppable domino effect with people piling on top of each other. Those entering the station were unable to see what had happened at the bottom and continued to push forward, making a bad situation even worse as people were lifted off of their feet and carried downstairs by the force of the crowd behind. The whole episode lasted only 15 seconds, at the end of which all anyone could see was a huge pile of bodies, 10 deep, arms and legs entangled with those at the bottom crushed to death. The stairway was converted from a corridor into a charnel house in 10 to 15 seconds, it was said. And just so you all know, there weren't any railings or anything like that, and it was very poorly lit. So this was just bad on top of bad. The people already settled in the shelter were completely unaware of the tragedy which was unfolding above them. Thomas Penn, who was bringing his wife to the shelter, luckily arrived too late to be caught up in it, but tried to assess the damage. He crawled down over the bodies, finding 200 people at the bottom trapped in a small space. He then crawled back out to send a message for help and crawled back down to try and help those trapped. He fainted twice on his journey. People arriving at the scene joined in the rescue attempt. The injured were taken to the hospital while the bodies were laid out on the pavement. The dead were later taken to the local mortuary at Whitechapel Hospital, and when that became overcrowded, were brought over the road to St. John's Church. The police surgeon told the coroner that he had been amazed that of the 300 people involved, not one was found with fractured ribs. It took a while for the scale of what had happened to sink in. 62 people had been injured. 173 had been killed. 27 men, 84 women, and 62 children. The woman who had been at the front of the group survived, but her child did not. The youngest to be killed was Carol Geary. She was only five months old. The loss of life was horrendous, and not a single bomb had been dropped. The disaster affected everyone involved, those who had been trapped, the rescuers, and, of course, the families who lost their loved ones. For many, what they had gone through, seen, or heard haunted them and left scars that never healed. One survivor's daughter recounted how her mother once told her that every night of her life, when she laid down to sleep, she heard the cries and screams of everybody. For fear of a public backlash, the government tried to cover up the incident, telling the public that it was a bomb that went off, instead of the terrible accidents that had ensued. 
and an action that was far too late. The safety of the entrance to Beth Nelson Green tube station was improved with a handrail added so people had something to hold onto, as well as proper lighting so no one will be entering in the darkness again. <clears throat> Today, the disaster is commemorated with an incredible sculpture. At the end of 2017, artist Harry Pitkoss made Stairway to Heaven, a wooden stairway which displays the names of all the victims lost in the 1943 disaster and which stands outside Bethnal Green Station as a tribute. <clears throat> The tragedy in the tube left an indelible print on the station and the people who work there. A very famous story is that of a man who was working in the station and was getting ready to call it a night. The last train had departed and all the staff had gone home, apart from him. He secured the station, turned off the lights, and went back to his office to finish off some paperwork. He had not been back in the office very long before he started hearing children sobbing. At first, he shrugged it off and carried on working, but the crying grew louder and louder. After that, he heard female, vo female voices and screams and noises he could not identify. He described the sound as similar to people who are panicking. The sounds lasted for 10 to 15 minutes, and he was so frightened that he ran out of the office and rushed to the top of the booking hallway to get away from it. Since then, passengers and station workers claimed to hear the screams of women and children echoing through the narrow corridors at night on many occasions. Hopefully, the spirits of the trampling victims have crossed over into another realm. So what's sad about this is um, the noise that everybody heard that caused them to break out was actually the sound of a new anti-aircraft uh, weapon being deployed, and they didn't warn anybody that there was going to be this new weapon in this area. So that's why they panicked. They hadn't heard it. They thought it was a bomb. So. <sighs> I keep shutting my hand. <laughs> All right, so this one is Hyde Park, uh, Hyde Park Corner. The station is on the Piccadilly line between Knightsbridge Station and Green Park Station. It's one of the few stations that the London Underground has no building above ground. Everything is completely underground. So in November of 1978, a gentleman by the name of Barry Oakley was a station supervisor working an overnight shift at the station. He closed and emptied the station and shut the escalators down, having checked that he had properly removed the breakers, a piece of equipment designed to stop the escalators from moving. He and a colleague returned to the office. At 2.30 a.m., there was a commotion in the booking hall area. When he and his colleague left the office to investigate, they discovered that the escalator they had come up was actually back on and working. They both found that very strange because with the breakers out, the escalator wasn't, as far as I know, connected to any electricity supply, and they couldn't actually start the escalator running without the special key that was needed. It was about 3.20 a.m. when he and his colleague got back to the supervisor's office, having conducted a thorough search to discover what had caused the commotion and they had both heard in the booking area. Feeling more than a little unnerved at the night's strange events, Mr. Oakley decided that he was going to make them both a cup, cup of tea, because that solves everything. Cup of tea. Cup of tea. As he did so, however, a feeling that he was being watched by an invisible presence in the office grew in intensity. In addition to the temperature in the office suddenly plummeting, uh, to such an extent that he could actually see his breath as he exhaled. 
At that point, he turned around and noticed his colleague was leaning against the table that was up against the wall, and he was extremely pale and very clearly distressed. It took Mr. Oakley about five to ten minutes to get his colleague to open up about what was bothering him, and he said, did you see the face? His colleague then told him that he, Mr. Oakley, had been making the tea and a disembodied head floated through the office wall, spent some time staring at the pair of them. Shortly afterward, Mr. Oakley's colleague decided he could no longer stay on duty and left the station to go home. By the way, he never returned to work at the underground again. <laughs> the ghost of the faceless woman has been seen walking behind people in the tunnels at the station as well. So now we're going to move over to Allgate Station. This one is actually located in the city of London. It's on the circle line between Tower Hill and Liverpool Street, and it's the eastern terminus of the Metropolitan Line. It was opened on November 18th of 1876. It was built on the side, of course, of the plague pit, as we mentioned before, and nearly a thousand bodies are buried only two weeks after the plague of 1655. The station also was badly damaged uh, by the German bombing during World War II. Now, some years ago, an electrician that was working at the station made what should have been his last mistake. Somehow, he managed to send over 20,000 votes of electricity through his own body, and by all accounts, he should have been killed. Instead, he was just knocked unconscious, and apart from bruising on his forehead, he was otherwise unharmed. His colleagues had been watching him just before the accident happened. Once he had sufficiently recovered his the colleagues all swore that just prior to the incident that should have claimed his life, they had seen an almost transparent figure of an old lady standing alongside of him, dressfully stroking his hand. Who is this spirit? Perhaps the guardian angel? There was a mystery, but she is generally attributed to the person who is at her end at or near the station, a person who wanted to look out for another in their moment of need. All right, so we're going to jump on to um, uh, one of the extension lines, and this is going to cover multiple extensions. <clears throat> they do believe. Yeah, they, they, got, um, they got fighting names for their, <laughs> their lines. It's not just the red, the blue, the silver, the green. Yeah. They, they actually... Yeah, the Jubilee line was under construction last time I was in London, so I actually didn't get to go on it. I know I am. <laughs> Well, I'm excited because I want to go on. I just, guess there's a story for it. Just to give you an idea as to how much Beth is dating herself here, the Jubilee Line extension for Central to East London was constructed in the 1990s and opened just before Christmas in 1999. I was there in 98. <laughs> the extension carved its way through the grounds of several old monasteries, forcing the relocation of 683 exhumed graves. Oh. You know, they like coming to this. We've covered this. Ever since, numerous sightings of phantom monks on this part of the network have been recorded. Just like every other line in the London Underground, every mile of the Jubilee Line is checked each night on foot by track walking patrolmen who walk the dark tunnels on their own. Bill McCown is a patrolman on the London Underground. At night, when all the trains have parked up and the stations have grown silent, it's his job to walk the track. In the humid darkness, he carries his torch. His keen gaze takes in every detail of the railway lines and the tunnel around him. Any sign of wear and tear is repaired there, there and then, 
or else report you back to headquarters for a team of engineers. For four or five hours each night, there is just him, his torch, and the buried tunnels far below the city. Torch flashlight. equals flashlight. <clears throat> Halfway along, he pauses, setting down to eat his lunch and drink from his bottle of Coke. It was during one of these breaks when he witnessed and experienced something quite out of the ordinary. Billy was patrolling the tracks of the Jubilee Line between Baker Street and St. John's Wood at 2.30 in the morning. In a hollow of the tunnel, there was a baffle, which is basically there to kind of cancel out the noise. And it did, you know, precisely what it was supposed to do, and it also made a very comfortable makeshift bench for a patrolman to sit and get lunch. With the torch still illuminating the railway tracks at his he became aware that the ballast, powdery dust in the center of the tracks was being disturbed. There should have been nothing present to cause that, but as he stared, Billy's confusion turned to shock. The shapes forming in the ballast were footprints. Something unseen was walking right in front of him through the tunnel. The air became freezing cold. It should have been a blessed relief in the heat of the tunnel, but Billy wasn't in the frame of mind to be grateful. He was a long walk from either of the stations before or behind him, and the ghostly footprints were moving in the direction that he had to go. Billy kept his torch trained upon them until they finally stopped some ten meters ahead. He had no choice in the matter, as to go on, his own footprints mirroring those in the bell beneath him. He never saw what had caused them, and the temperature did return to normal. The second that he was passed, the footsteps stopped. When he reached the end of his shift at Charing Cross, Billy shared his story with the senior patrolman, Mr. Wilson. His colleague didn't laugh. He already knew the stories just like this, and he had the reason why they happened. There was once another patrolman who walked those tracks. He was killed by a runaway train coming out of Finchley. He apparently had no idea that he was dead, so he continued his own shift each night. All right, so we're going to actually skip our last train station. I put a few in there. Oh, we've been going almost an hour already. Yeah, so we're going to talk about the Phantom Bus of London. Beth, Beth really wants to talk about Phantom Bus. Not that I blame her. It's not the night bus from Harry Potter. Maybe, maybe inspired. Maybe inspired. All right, so long before the night bus made its first appearance in Harry Potter, there was a Phantom Bus of London. It's described as a red double-decker bus with the number seven on its side, and the town of transport has been the stuff of legend since 1934. On the, on the first night that the bus decided, two versions of the story come forward. In the first, a driver near Hyde Park veered off the road and collided with a wall. He attributed his accident to a bus that was careening down the road straight for him. In another version, the man died in the accident, and the eyewitnesses described a phantom bus that ran the driver off the road. Over the years, numerous sightings of this bus have been made, and they always mirror the original claim. A ghost bus would appear at Cambridge Gardens exactly at 1.15 a.m., lights blazing, no driver, no passengers, and it's inexplicably careening down the road, causing frightened motorists in its path to swerve out of the way and get into an accident. Now, the bus actually has not been sighted since 1990, and this is just before the first road leading up to the infamous intersection got straightened out. 
so finally maybe it no longer has to be a screaming course. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not a cat now. So there's oh. no room for the cat. Back me? Yes. Vincent has opinions about this on my own. You got to read the night book. I did. So, or the tantrum book, so. I've, I've been holding on to this story for a while. <laughs> so, moving on from buses, we are going to go back to a time when horse and carriage were still the common method of transportation around London. Late one evening, as the sun was setting, Mr. Ward and his uncle were traveling home between the northern boroughs of Enfield and Barnet. All was quiet and still, the only sound being the clatter of the horse's hooves and the low rumbling of the carriage. As the night shadows deepened, a feeling of sudden terror, followed by an intense feeling of hopeless melancholy, suddenly descended upon the men. Moments later, the horses shied in alarm and, without warning, bolted. The carriage was dragged at breakneck speed as Mr. Ward struggled to control the terrified animal. As he was fighting for control, the moon emerged from behind a cloud bank and it illuminated the scene both and as it illuminated the scene, both men saw the cause of the horse's alarm. Walking on the grass alongside them, keeping up easily with the animal's speed, was a tall man with a deathly pale face. A deep, gaping wound ran along one side of his throat and glimmered in the moonlight. They galloped onward until the hideous specter fell behind and stopped by a certain gate. The horses became calmer, their speed slackened, and when the two men looked back, they saw the figure standing by the gate, staring after them. But as they watched, it began to fade, and moments later, the figure vanished from the other. The next day, Mr. Ward was telling a friend about their experience and was astonished to learn that in 1832, a Mr. Dandy had been murdered alongside that particular gate and that many people had encountered his specter in the lane where the crime occurred. Along the same light, in the same area, they stole up an Enfield. On a cold, crisp December evening in 1961, we have fast forwarded, well, probably about a century, young Robert Byrd was cycling along Bell Lane on his way to a boys' brigade meeting when he sighted a pair of lights speeding towards him from the opposite direction. As the lights got closer, they suddenly swerved across the road and headed straight at him. Convinced that an out-of-control vehicle was about to run him over, Robert attempted to get out of his path, but was too late, and he braced himself for the inevitable impact. As is often the case in the times of crisis, the whole scene suddenly went into slow motion, and he was able to take in that the vehicle was, in fact, a black coach. Being pulled by four horses, they were being spurred on by two shaggy figures. Strangest of all was the fact that the carriage was actually traveling four or five feet off the ground. But just as the coach was about to hit him, it passed straight through him and vanished. What Robert had witnessed was the so-called phantom coach of Enfield, a ghostly conveyance that races along Bell Lane, its wheels above the ground, and although their noise and that of the horse's hooves are clearly audible. Tradition holds that its origins lie in the 18th century when the countryside hereabouts was marshland and the rutted road was a good deal higher than it is today. It was quite common for the speeding coaches to veer from the highway and plunge into the swamp, often with tragic results. Is it possible that the spectral coach, which has been seen by many witnesses, is a vestige of one such long ago tragedy that has somehow left an imprint on the surroundings? 
and which is occasionally reenacted before startled spectators? Quite possibly. Quite likely, if you see that. Take the last one. I think we're going to take the last one for another transportation. Go with Glenn. We do have, yeah. we'll, we'll circle back. Heck, we got a transportation too. Maybe we could stretch it out into English transportation. Probably. Probably. Because it was a 52 station. Yep. Yeah, because if we do keep going, this will be a long stretch. It was a 9,000 word stretch. We usually stop at about 7,700. So, yeah, we're about... We're over quite a bit. Yeah. Um, next time, I think we're doing how ghost ships. You tell me. I think it's ghost ships. We'll have to get these next time. He hasn't looked at that script yet. I have not. <laughs> but... Okay. Thank you.